Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 28 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis, moderator of today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce the third speaker in our fall series on rebuilding. Robin Wright has reported on the Middle East for more than 35 years. Her coverage of international affairs has earned five nominations for the Pulitzer Prize and awards from the National Press Club and Overseas Press Club, the American Academy of Diplomacy, and the UN Correspondents Association. She has written for the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, and CBS News. The author of five books on the Middle East, her most recent, Dreams and Shadows, The Future of the Middle East, provides a comprehensive look at the people and events transforming that part of the world. She is currently a scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., where she is working on her next book on the Middle East. In her presentation today, Ms. Wright will explore social and political changes in the Middle East, its emerging leadership, and the challenges to American foreign policy that await the next administration. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Robin Wright. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be in Minneapolis. I landed in the Middle East 35 years ago this month, on October 6, 1973, the day the Sixth Middle East War broke out. I remember a tourist at the airport leaning over to me in panic and saying, the Egyptians have crossed the Suez Canal. I have covered all the wars in the Middle East in the interim and seen all of the major transformations up risings and revolutions during that period. A lot has changed. When I went to the Middle East, the price of oil was $3.12 a barrel. I've also seen some of the rocky times in the region. 25 years ago this month, I was awakened by a thundering explosion in Beirut, where I lived at the time. It was the largest non-nuclear explosion anywhere on Earth since World War II. It went off at the Marine barracks, the peacekeepers who'd come in the aftermath of Israel's invasion of Lebanon. 241 Marines died that day. It was the largest loss of US military life in a single incident since Iwo Jima during World War II. It was one of the three first bombings by a suicide extremist uh, that marked the beginning of the trend. Two US embassies in the Marine compound, all in Beirut. I witnessed all three of them, and I've been tracking the trend ever since. I went to Iran in the aftermath of those bombings to try to find out who was responsible and why they were happening. I followed the trend as it emerged among Palestinians during the uprisings, um, the intifadas, I went to Afghanistan during the days of the Taliban and went to the camps of 
uh, Pakistani extremists and Osama bin Laden. Over the past 25 years, Islamic extremism has grown into the greatest single threat to American national interests. It is the most volatile trend in the world today. I tracked it in one of the very first books on the trend, a book about sacred rage, as I called it. I remember one of the reviewers said, it's an interesting trend, this is 1985, but it's really peaked. Its explosive potential is clearly going to be with us for a long time to come. And yet, I've come here today to talk about a very different trend that I believe is also taking root in the region. Because I think Islamic extremism is no longer the most interesting, the most energetic, or the most important trend in the Middle East. There is today, for the first time, some sign of promise. Almost 25 years after those first attacks, and seven years after 9-11, there is in the region a budding culture of change. There is a recognition that the extremists cannot provide the solutions to the problems of everyday life. They can confront, they can destroy, but they can't provide solutions to the problems that grip that part of the region even more than they do us. I've spent almost a year for this book going back to the region, to all 22 Muslim countries and Israel, to get a sense of what's happening. Looking back over those 35 years, I need to tell you or warn you that I am the ultimate pessimist. I'm not the one who says, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? I'm the one who says, is there really any water in the glass at all? So what surprised me the most was my own reaction to the Middle East. What I found were new public voices, daring publications, and increasingly noisy protests across two dozen countries, giving shape to a vigorous, if at this stage, disjointed trend. It includes defiant judges in Cairo, rebel clerics in Iran, satellite television owners in Dubai, imaginative feminists in Rabat, and the first female candidates for office in Kuwait, the young techies in Jeddah, daring journalists in Beirut and Casablanca, and brave businessmen in Damascus. For all of them, peaceful empowerment has become the preferred means of challenging the status quo and producing change. The tiny minority willing to go out and kill has had such impact in part because in the past there were so few alternative political ideas or actors. But today because of impatience and frustration, fueled by education, access to the internet, demographics, and change elsewhere in the world, people are looking actively and doing things to create alternatives. For many years when I worked as a reporter in the region, I always went to look for the Mujahideen, the holy warriors, as the barometer of opposition and change. Today I find that I'm looking for what I've dubbed the Pajama Hadeen, those who 
work peacefully from the security of their homes. They don't use bombs and bullets. They use the laptops, uh, the computer technology, in order to challenge the status quo. One of my favorite characters in, in the book is a young Egyptian blogger named Wael Abbas. He started his blog in 2004, and it was originally going to be about technical issues. But he got increasingly involved in covering what was going on in Egypt, started writing about human rights. In the process, he got his hands on a cell phone video of two Egyptian policemen beating up a detainee and sodomizing him with the end of a broomstick. He took that cell phone video and he put it on his blog. It ended up on YouTube. And it generated such a domestic and international outcry that the Egyptian government was forced to prosecute the two policemen. Here's one man with one new tool circumventing state-controlled television, radio, and newspapers, getting the truth out in a verifiable way, producing a reaction, and holding the government responsible. Today, his blog gets between 30,000 and 45,000 hits every day. And today, there are over 1,200 different blogs in Egypt. The issue in the Middle East is no longer whether to engage in change. The issue is instead how to get there. Pressure is mounting on virtually every Middle East regime. Even the conservative Gulf shakedoms have had to respond even though what they're trying to do is prevent change. They have to give at least lip service to the issues that are taking hold among their own populations. Saudi Arabia had its own male-only election in 2005, but at least it was an election. Again, with all the caveats, it was for men only, for only two-thirds of the seats in local councils, one-third of the seats appointed, and of course it takes two-thirds plus one to change anything. But in nearby Kuwait, they have not only given women the vote, they've allowed women to run for office. What makes this era different is that the activists now trying to hold governments to account are no longer limited to the intellectual elite, to the westernized English-speaking populations. And the numbers engaged are really quite striking, particularly when you compare them to the small cells of suicide extremists. I, li I lived in Lebanon for five years during its civil war in which Violence was the idiom of opposition for everything. I went to the movies once to see Warren Beatty's Reds, and I remember at the end, instead of applause, three people got up and fired their guns into the air as the rest of us dove under our seats. Weddings were celebrated with gunfire when the bride and groom exited. Uh, gridlock car traffic jams were broken up by someone simply firing their gun into the air. But when I went back in 2005, I was struck by the fact that a quarter of Lebanon's population took to the streets peacefully to demand that Syrian troops withdraw and that the Lebanese government resign. These were goals that the United States and the international powers had made a goal for years but by peacefully demonstrating 
Week after week after week, the Lebanese managed to get the Syrians to end a 29-year military occupation and the Lebanese government to resign. Lebanon still faces many problems. They've gone through another war with Israel in the meantime, and they've had their own internal squabbles, but it's never broken down again into civil war. Other countries have witnessed similar incidents. After three hotels were bombed in downtown Amman, more than 100,000 people turned out on the streets to protest against Al-Qaeda, which claimed responsibility. They marched through the streets of Amman, shouting at Al-Qaeda, burn in hell. Throughout the Islamic world, more than 2,000 Muslim intellectuals have signed a petition calling on the United Nations to sponsor a new treaty outlawing violence and the use of religion to justify conflict. They propose that the United Nations create an international tribunal to try what they called the theologians of terror and the sheikhs of death. Sometimes we see change better through the human experience. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to identify some of the people who are offering alternatives in the region. A friend of mine said the problem in the Middle East is that there are no Lech Valences, there are no Nelson Mandelas. I went out to find out if that was true. And I thought I'd tell you about three or four of them to give you a sense of the kinds of things that are happening in the regions, and sometimes ways we don't look at as the conventional out, uh, means of change. My favorite character in the book is the Nelson Mandela of Syria. His name is Riyadh Turk. This is a man who has protested the government in Damascus and been jailed time and time and time again. His third incarceration, he was held in a room the size of an elevator with no windows, no toilet, no bed, no furniture. There were no charges against him, so he had no lawyer, no trial, no sense of how long he was going to be held. He couldn't write his family, have visitors, or have contact with any other prisoners. He kept his sanity by taking the uncooked kernels of rice from his soup at night and using them to draw geometric designs on the floor of his cell. He did that for 18 years. He was 68 when he came out, and what did he do? He started protesting again, and what happened? He went back to jail. I saw him a, a few weeks after he was released, in his, now in his mid-70s, almost blind, serious heart problems, and what is he doing? He's calling for regime change in Damascus, and he's not a lone voice. There are hundreds of people who have taken very brave stands in opposing the regime of the Assad family. Another of my favorite characters is an Egyptian woman named Gada Shabendur. Gada had never voted, never belonged to a political party, never engaged in any political activity. But one day she saw on one of the new satellite televisions that is bringing in news not controlled by the state, pictures of policemen watching as a group of thugs beat up women protesters. She was so outraged that she decided to join the women. 
And she went down and she tells a delicious story of how the woman next to her, seeing a new face, said, well, I hope, my dear, that you brought 100 Egyptian pounds with you. And Gada turned to her and said, since when does a protest have an entry fee? And the woman said, no, no, that's what you need for bail. Gada knew that she'd crossed a threshold, but she decided it wasn't enough just to be reactive. She decided she needed to be proactive. So she formed a group with some friends called We're Watching You, and the you is the Egyptian government. And they decided with elections coming up, first for the president and then separate elections for parliament, that they would try to monitor the election because the Egyptian government doesn't, doesn't allow international observers. Never having done, engaged in politics before, they weren't quite sure what to do. They talked to lawyers. They talked to political parties. They set up a website. By word of mouth, they got telephone numbers around. Call us if you see anything. They mobilized at the small office of an advertising agency wondering if anybody would call at all. By the end of the day, they had over a 1,000 verifiable cases of election fraud. Western embassies started calling them to find out what had really happened in the election. Western journalists started calling to find out what really happened. International human rights groups started calling them. For the parliamentary elections, they then decided to hire a, a cameraman now, the Egyptian government has a little trick. It buses in its supporters early in the day to vote, and then it dispatches the police and these unofficially sanctioned thugs uh, to hassle voters so they get frustrated. If they have to go to work, it takes too long, they give up. Um, and so Gada and her cameraman went to several of these places. Sure enough, at one of them, the voters getting frustrated decided, well, they'd go get a ladder to climb over the school fence. They were so determined to vote at the school. And as they did that, the Egyptian police opened fire, first with rubber bullets and, and tear gas. Gada got it all on film. But she decided this wasn't enough. So she and her little group then filed suit against the Egyptian government for failing to comply with all the obligations as a signatory to an international treaty on corruption. Anyone who knows Egypt knows that bakshish, corruption, is a way of life. She then started a program for 13 and 14-year-olds to learn about constitutions. They launched a uh, national essay contest that kids should come and write about four constitutions, the Egyptian, American Constitution, and any two others from democracies, Japan, South Africa, um, Europe. The winners, the two dozen winners, they brought to the United States and spent a week at a school in Massachusetts where the 13 and 14 year olds worked with their counterparts learning about the rule of law. And then they took them to Philadelphia and Washington to see how America's constitution works. She's done all of this in the last three years. I'll, I want to open it up to your questions, so I'll tell you uh, about just one more. There is a lot of diversity in a lot of different ways. Um, one of my other favorite characters is a cleric in Iran. He opposes the idea of a supreme leader, who is the ultimate power in Iran. He has the supreme leader can 
veto legislation, disqualify candidates running for office, overturn decisions of the presidency. The Supreme Leader is an infallible leader. And the cleric's name is uh, Hadi Khamenei. And Khamenei uh, toured the country giving lectures in seminaries and universities against the idea of a supreme leader. He said no one should be above the law. Everyone should be elected by the population and that everyone should have term limits like all, like the presidency in Iran. Um, he opened a newspaper so that he could write op-eds. The newspaper was closed. He ran for parliament. He won one term. He ran again. He was disqualified for not having credentials Islamic enough. Uh, he campaigned, continued to send this message throughout Iran that the supreme leader was not in keeping with the will of the revolution, which was to democratize Iran. What makes him so interesting is that his older brother is Iran's supreme leader. Now, I write about many of the dark sides of um, the Middle East in my book as well. It's called Dreams and Shadows. Uh, and I think that there are lots of dark days ahead. Um, di democracy is about differences, and those differences are likely to flourish once systems open up. In a region that's rife with minorities, opening up politics also deepens the problems it is often meant to solve. Opening new space also does not guarantee who will fill it, as we saw with the Palestinian elections. I think the period ahead will see a conflict between what I call the three crats, autocrats, theocrats, and democrats. The, the autocrats are the ones who have the most power. They do not intend to share it. They have a monopoly on security forces and on the national budget, the resources of the nation. The autocrats, or the theocrats believe they have a mission from God and a flock of the faithful to tap into. And the Democrats are the most vulnerable, the weakest, the least experienced, and have the most limited resources. It will be an uneven contest for a long time to come. Change as it begins will often look more like participatory despotism than participatory democracy. Often the engines of change will also be vulnerable to exploitation, particularly among the young. The two engines of change in the Middle East today are the young people and the women. In fact, in Iran, they like to say, the real men in Iran are women. The young today is the youngest population anywhere in the world. Up to 70% are under the age of 30, in some countries even under 25. Many of them are powerful voting blocks, particularly in a place like Iran, where people vote from the age of 16. Kids are hungry for change. Many of them, even most of them in some countries, are connected to the outside world. They are aware of globalization, and they want to be part of it. They are also the most unemployed in the world. One out of three young people in the Middle East does not have a job. In countries where they don't have prospects of education, housing, and a sense of the future, they are very vulnerable to exploitation and recruitment by extremists. 
Change in his agents, in some cases, will produce troubling consequences. Many in the region will question the short-term dangers and whether they're worth the benefits and the price they have to pay along the way. But let me close and open it up to your questions with one final thought. I think the Middle East will obviously continue to spur our anxiety and focus our attention and in some cases drain our resources for a long time to come, whether we like it or not. Yet even, in, even as the war in Iraq has dragged on and to some deg degree discredited the idea of democracy promotion, the majority of the people in the Middle East today really do want political change. They, they are aware of what's happened in the rest of the world over the last quarter century with the end of communism, the collapse of military dictatorships, the demise of apartheid. What is most inspiring about the Middle East today is not what dreams we have for them. It is instead the aspirations and goals so many have genuinely set for themselves and are willing to put their lives on the line to try to achieve. I thank you very much. Now, Robin Wright, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present questions from the audience. You, do, you avoided mentioning much about Israel and Palestine other than the election of Hamas. What, what hopes are there for peace there? Do you have any anecdotes or stories of positive movements or persons involved in change, as you've told us in other parts of the Middle East? Well, what I was trying to say in a way is that we often focus so much on the geostrategic conflicts, as we should, that we sometimes fail to look at what's happening inside countries. Um, in the case of Syria, for example, we look at its meddling in Lebanon, its facilitation of foreign fighters into Iraq, and its role as spoiler in the Arab-Israeli um, peace effort. Uh, and we don't look at a lot of times what's happening inside Syria. And that's really what I was trying to do in each of the countries um, I went to, to try to give us a sense so we don't make the same mistakes we did in Iraq, where we relied on a group of exiles led by a man who'd not been to Iraq since 1958 to advise us on you know, what was likely to happen and what the U.S. should do. Um, on the Arab-Israeli conflict, I've been traveling with secretaries of state since Henry Kissinger and presidents since Jimmy Carter, uh, and have often, you know, gone along with presidents and secretaries of state when they've uh, engaged in peace efforts. I think the prospects for anything happening before the end of this administration are virtually nil. There's not the energy, um, uh, the ideas to pull something off. I, you know. There's a lot of talk now about whether it's even possible to engage in a two-state solution because you have not, you no longer have just two parties to this conflict, you really have three. Since the Palestinian elections, you have Hamas controlling the West Bank and Fatah, Yasser Arafat's old party, controlling the, um, the West Bank. I was to say Hamas controlling Gaza and, and Fatah controlling the West Bank. And they have very different positions on um, Israel, and that makes it very difficult to come to some kind of common understanding on peace. So uh, the next president will have his hands full. Um, do I have any positive anecdotes? Um, not yet. I do think it is uh, solvable. I still think the two-state solution is the best plan on the table. Um, the alternatives are not very attractive for a lot of reasons, which I'll be happy to go into if anybody's interested. 
Given your experience and knowledge in the Middle East, what would you advise the new president to do within the first, say, 100 days of his administration to affect change there? Well, I think one of the things we have, we have to seriously begin thinking about is um, what actions we can take without using military force uh, and without having to kind of club people over the head um, diplomatically to produce change. And I think the one thing we haven't used very effectively is American aid. We are a generous nation, um, uh, to some nations not enough, but when it comes to the Middle East, we have several countries that are large recipients of American aid. And we need to think about using that as a vehicle to say, if you want our resources, then you need to comply with basic standards, the kinds of values we have. For example, in the case of Egypt, which receives you know, up to over $2 billion, uh, $2 billion a year, um, we need to start saying to Hosni Mubarak, the president, uh, you need to allow greater freedom of, of uh, the press you, if you want our aid. Um, you need to uh, free some of the political prisoners who have not, either not been tried or um, who have questionable charges against them. I mean, one of the most appalling things about Egypt is that the, the President Mubarak did allow elections, uh, popular elections for the presidency for the first time. Uh, but then he turned around as soon as the election was over and arrested uh, his chief opponent. And he's still in jail um, on, trumped up, on what were really very flimsy charges. Uh, uh, so there are a lot of things we can do using uh, things like aid. I also think we need to kind of signal that uh, a different tone in, in the kinds of things we're going to uh, do, that we, we want to cooperate with countries, we want to use dialogue. I think um, the I idea of using military force is one that uh, is very limited. We're already strained to the point of breaking in, um, in Iraq. We, have, we are pr probably likely to send additional troops, need to send additional troops to Afghanistan. And we have the growing problem of Pakistan. Um, we're not going to send troops there, but that's clearly you know, a, a, an area where we will be using military resources, uh, our drones, you know, missiles, and so forth, to try to go after pockets of uh, al-Qaeda operatives that are hiding along the border. Several questions specifically about Israel. You didn't mention the wall in your remarks, the wall that Israel is building around Palestinian towns and villages encircling them. How does that encourage or promote democracy? What other kinds of changes do you see perhaps in Israel that might in fact be signs of hope for that time, for, for the conflict between the Palestinians and Israelis? Well, Israel is clearly the, the greatest democracy in the Middle East. It's very feisty. Um, uh, I'm not sure that we're about to see a, uh, a change in leadership in Israel, and we also may see a change in the leadership of the Palestinians. They have a, a scheduled to have elections as soon as January for a new president, and Mahmoud Abbas is 70 years old, and there's, uh, there are some who think that he may not run again, so we may see a whole shift in leadership. The one good thing that's happened lately is that over the last year or so, you've seen the first really du solid direct exchanges between the leaders of the Palestinians and the Israelis without a lot of U.S. intervention. Um, that's a hopeful sign. Um, but Olmert, the Prime Minister of Israel, is departing under a cloud. Um, 
of scandal and uh, Mahmoud Abbas may not run again, then we may be starting basically from scratch. Uh, the wall is very controversial. It has clearly been effective in uh, cutting back on some of the suicide bombings, but it's also uh, been controversial. Even the Israel Supreme Court has um, ruled that parts of it need to be moved because they, it cuts through Palestinian lands. So um, I don't, I'm not sure there's a good answer except pushing on the peace process to make sure that the, the wall doesn't become like the Berlin Wall. Several questions on U.S. policy in Iraq. What are the sorts of policy options you see that might be constructive for the new administration in addressing our situation in Iraq? I suspect the new president will be under extraordinary pressure from the Iraqis as well as the United States, or many Americans, to um, begin pulling back troops. And I would predict that within the first couple of years, we may see from a third, a quarter to a third of maybe even a half of U.S. combat troops, and there's a big difference, combat troops uh, pulled out of Iraq. Again, I think um, we'll end up deploying uh, more in Afghanistan. General Petraeus has already indicated that the fighting there, he predicts, is likely to get worse before it gets better, and um, there are many calls for more troops. Uh, in terms of Iraq, we're at a very delicate point in negotiations for the status of American troops. What um, we want uh, rights that the Iraqis don't want to give us. We want U.S. troops to be um, uh, immune from prosecution for any crime they might commit or any killing or whatever uh, in Iraq. This is something we traditionally ask from allies. It's interesting that that was one of the things that was so controversial in Iran and that, that led to the emergence of Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the revolutionary leader, um, in the protest over the immunity given American troops in Iran back in the 1960s. Will the U.S. leaving Iraq, as it will eventually, help destabilize or stabilize the Middle East? You know, one of the questions when it comes to U.S. troops and getting out of Iraq is we can get to a point where there are, a, there are sufficient numbers of Iraqi troops. The problem is you can't in three or four years create um, the kind of leadership within a military. You don't create generals and colonels overnight, people with experience to lead troops, to develop plans, to be able to secure a nation. And so that's going to take time. Uh, and I suspect we will continue to play a role advising the Iraqis, uh, having bases, whether we pull troops out, eventually have them in Kuwait or elsewhere in the Gulf on ships, to make sure that we can, we can go after al-Qaeda if it comes back into Iraq. Um, I'm, I haven't forgotten the question now. Well, let me ask a follow-up question. Uh, taking a long view, you've been at it for 30-plus years in the Middle East. Uh, do you think that we will one day look back on the Iraq War, our invasion and occupation of Iraq, as having been a positive influence in the Middle East? No. <laughs> I, I, I say that because, um, look, I think I'm an historian by training. And I think we will look back on the U.S. intervention in Iraq as the greatest foreign policy mistake in the history of the United States. Um, and I don't say that uh, because of being any peacenik. I, I covered Saddam Hussein. I saw the use 
the victims of, his, uh, of the use of chemical weapons, both among the Kurds in the north and the Iranians during the eight-year Iran-Iraq war. I know what he was capable of, but I think that the United States didn't have enough troops, didn't have a game plan, didn't uh, have a post-war plan, uh, that we made mistake after mistake after mistake. And the Iraqis never asked us to come in. Again, I go back to relying on a group of exiles who told us what, what some people in the administration wanted to hear. And I think that um, because we weren't thoughtful about it. Now, having said that, I think we also need to be very careful. We have a moral obligation to the people in this country. And the problem is, at the moment, life is tougher for, for, for most of them than it was under Saddam Hussein in his, at the end of his uh, uh, period in office. Uh, unemployment is higher, electricity shortages are rampant, crime is terrible, including t problems, real problems of, of rape and kidnapping for ransom. Um, that, you know, unemployment is, is, is terrible. Uh, two, more than two million Iraqis have fled to neighboring countries. Uh, 7,000 doctors, part of 40,000 in the medical profession that have left Iraq because of the fear of violence, um, over 3,000 professors. I mean, we're talking about a real brain drain. And we're leaving, we, you know, we have to be very careful that we don't, we're not held responsible for um, leaving behind a country that is more shaped than when we went in. Several questions about Iran. The U.S. needs to be publicly engaged in conversation with that nation. We're told that President Ahmadinejad is simply a figurehead. Is that the case? If not with him, with whom should we try to engage in Iran? Uh, I've interviewed President Ahmadinejad twice. Uh, I've interviewed the last four Iranian leaders, and uh, including the man who's the supreme leader today, not just his younger brother. And uh, I think in many ways we make a mistake in, in looking just at President Ahmadinejad as the, the leader of uh, Iran. Yes, he's the elected president, but um, he doesn't hold the most power the supreme leader does. And in many ways, we in the outside world have made him the power that he is at home. Uh, I think by, by, I mean, clearly he's made outrageous statements about Israel, totally unacceptable, uh, and outrageous statements about the United States. He wrote a, a letter to uh, President Bush, 18 pages long, that is very, very peculiar. Um, but, um, but by focusing so much on him, we've actually made him kind of popular at home. Now, he's up for re-election next June. Um, it would be his second term, and there's a two-term limit in Iran. Uh, and he's in a lot of economic trouble. He is engaged in, uh, we all know a lot about the banking crisis now. Well, he has ordered interest rates lowered in Iran to between 10 and 12 percent when inflation is somewhere between 27 and 30 percent. Banks just can't survive that way. Uh, he's vowed to put uh, Iran's oil wealth on every table, and yet um, his populist policies have led uh, it, you know, to great division within the government. He's, had to, he's fired six ministers with um, financial portfolios and two central bank governors uh, because they've all said this won't work. So I think, you know, 
prices have, um, have doubled on housing in the last two or three years. Uh, produce has tripled, some say quadrupled over the last two or three years. It's uh, very hard to live in Iran. Many people hold two and three jobs. So uh, I think he's going to face a real contest um, next year. And, and again, we have to be careful about not making him bigger than he is so that he faces a real contest at home. Do the U.S. and Europe have the leverage needed to prevent Iran from gaining nuclear weapons? What are the interests of Russia and China on this issue? Very good question. Um, the dynamics and the engagement with Iran have, ch have shifted, particularly as China has become, uh, has increased its appetite for oil to fuel its extraordinary economic growth. It is now one of the biggest purchasers of Iranian oil. Um, both China and Russia have blocked the United States uh, and its European allies from taking tougher actions at the United Nations, tougher punitive sanctions on Iran. Um, but despite all the steps that have been taken, sanctioning the entire Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the first time in history the United States has actually sanctioned another country's military, uh, sanctioning all kinds of banks to prevent business operations, the Iranians have not yet budged. They are insistent that enriching uranium, which is you can use for a peaceful nuclear energy program, but you can also subvert to develop the world's deadliest weapon. Uh, they believe that's a sovereign right, and they have not agreed to suspend. Um, there is a real danger that uh, Iran will develop a nuclear capability, which is you know, the preliminary step to a bomb. And it may be that that kind of capability is what they're looking for so that they uh, have a deterrent. But needless to say, no one wants this kind of regime to have a nuclear capability. The question then becomes, what do you do about it? Do you use military force? Um, all I can tell you is, if you thought Iraq was complicated and Afghanistan was messy, whoa, wait till you try using military force against Iran. That could actually backfire on us and ensure that Iran says it needs a nuclear weapon um, and, again, supports the revolutionary. You know, there's no easy answer on this question, and I think it, of all the challenges a new president will face, with Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Arab Israeli, and Iran, that Iran is going to be arguably the most daunting because with all the others, we have interlocutors, we have diplomatic contact, we have military liaison, our intelligence forces are often in touch with their counterparts, and even among the Palestinians, and their economic aid flows, uh, but we don't have any, t you know, any means of dealing with Iran. So this is a um, a, a real challenge for the next president, particularly as the Iranians continue to develop uh, centrifuges, which are part of the fuel cycle. Again, a question drawing on your expertise and experience uh, in the long view here. Long term, do you see Iran as a logical ally of the United States in the Middle East? A good question. Uh, it's amazing to think that before the revolution, Iran and Israel were the two pillars of U.S. foreign policy. And today, uh, Iran is our, not only our nemesis, but it is the superpower in the Middle East, um, in part because of uh, our own engagement. Over the last year, a very fragile regime has become very powerful uh, with tentacles in ever more countries and uh, deeper in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, the irony, too, is that whenever I go to Iran, and I've been going there almost every year since 1973, uh, I am struck by how much Iranians like Americans. 
Uh, they don't like our policies, they don't like our leadership, but they love American movies, they love to talk to Americans. Um, the last time I was in Iran, there was a double bill uh, at one of the local theaters, Fahrenheit 9-11 and Kill Bill with Uma Thurman. Um, I've seen young women whose version of Islamic dress is a, a black baggy sweatshirt and a black skirt with Planet Hollywood Las Vegas across the front. Um, you know, we have stereotypes, uh, uh, images that really date back to the revolution and a lot has changed during that period. They know a lot about us and we don't know very much about them and, and that's too bad. Several questions about the education of girls and women. Do you see an, a, any changes in uh, the Islamic regimes toward women and girls? And is there, in fact, a new university for women in Saudi Arabia? Oh, I think there have been, you know, schools and, uh, you know, I don't know the Saudi school system very well, but I know that there are schools for girls and there probably is a university or a wing of a university for girls, that's uh, females. That's long been the, the pattern of education. Um, I, a couple stories on female because, I, again, I think the women are a real engine of change. Um, one of my favorite stories in the book is about a Moroccan named Fatima Mernisi. Fatima was born into a harem in my lifetime, not the harem of a man with concubines and wives, but an extended, the traditional family harem in the Middle East, which is the extended family living together, several generations, you know, siblings and their spouses and their children and their parents all living together. And um, Fatima, uh, all the women in Fatima's family were illiterate. And uh, there was a man hired full-time whose only job was to ensure that the women never left the house and that no strangers ever got in to see the women. And they entertained themselves by giving little plays up on the rooftop for each other and telling stories. Well, Fatima was a curious little girl, and she used to watch her father listen to the radio, and then he would lock up the cabinet and hide the key. Well, when her father went out, Fatima went and retrieved the key and listened to the radio. And she got a sense of the city she lived in, Fez, and the country, Morocco, and the continent, Africa, and a sense of the world. And she started pestering her mother to let her go to school because she heard on the news that Morocco had started public schools for girls. And this is quite a while ago now, but still in my lifetime. And uh, her mother went to her father and, and coaxed and cajoled, and finally he held a family council, male members only, of course, to decide whether this little girl could go to school. Well, they finally agreed, and Fatima ended up going to elementary school, and then junior high, and then high school. Then she ended up at the Sorbonne, to do college, and Brandeis to do her PhD. And she is today the Arab world's leading feminist. And she's written a series of books, um, one of which is called The Veil and the Male Elite. And she looks at all the fatwas and edicts over the centuries of Islam to show what has been added, what restrictions on women were not part of the religion when it was founded, trying to, to strip away centuries of tradition added that really have confined women the most. Uh, and she's you know, one of hundreds, thousands of women who are now very active. It's the one issue on which you see some connection because the women tend to be good about reaching out to other women. Uh, international groups have tried to help them connect. 
So while all the other groups are very small, local, national, whatever, it's, there's a women's network developing in the region that is one of the most powerful I've seen anywhere in the world. We're now just two and a half weeks away from the U.S. presidential election. Are Middle Eastern countries interested in our upcoming election? Oh boy, are they. Uh, their fate will be decided just as ours will. Do, do people in the Middle East, from your perspective, feel that the U.S. is, is involved too much or too little in their affairs? Oh, too much. Uh, way too much. And I think uh, there's disappointment that the U.S. hasn't done more to try to get uh, a peace agreement between the Arabs and the Israelis. Uh, but, and disappointment also that the U.S. Has, has, as they see it, and I'm putting this in their words, um, intervened in uh, places that, they weren't that we weren't necessarily wanted. I think that, that we will probably have a period, in fact, in which the United States will have to stand back a little bit. We will not have to be as um, active in the region, that we'll have to, to kind of give them some breathing space to take actions on their own. Um, it'll be tempting for us to try to, to help them along, to give them direction, to tell them what to do because we think we know better, and we probably do, but um, they need to be the ones to do it themselves. I think the real lesson out of Iraq is that change in the region is most legitimate when it's carried out by the people themselves. <laughs> You describe yourself as a pessimist, but you sound like something of an optimist. Uh, can, you, can you tell us in this last, last question to you, what gives you hope about the Middle East? Oh, I just think that there is, uh, we've reached a turning point, and I can only stress again and again that it is a beginning. It is likely to get far more turbulent as conditions change, as people are more active, as societies try to change and argue among themselves about what kind of change is right. It'll also look alien to us because I think Islam will often be the idiom of opposition. In many ways, Islam may be the antidote to Islamism. In other words, people's use of their religion in peaceful ways as believers rather than using it uh, as violence will often be the way people look at change. So many of uh, the regimes in the region, including many of our allies, have outlawed, exiled, put under house arrest, or banned the traditional opposition movements the, um, or activists of change, the Democrats, the nationalists, the leftists. And that's left only Islam as the idiom of political op opposition. That's not, in the aftermath of 9-11, going to ever make us very comfortable. But I think we have to um, realize that there are people trying. And that's why I went out to take a look at um, who's active, what are they doing, what kind of imaginative approaches are they taking. Uh, and hopefully that, that um, we can look beyond what I call the green zone of our policy and our mindset to um, give some of these people uh, uh, assistance, uh, help, and a little bit of breathing room. Thank you, Robin Wright.